Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest is Maria Venegas, and her book is called Bulletproof Vest, The Ballad of an Outlaw and His Daughter. It's just out from FSG, and I'm delighted to be talking with you today, Maria. Thank you for having me. Introduce us to Bulletproof Vest and, and sort of the family dynamic that you're describing, because you, you pick things up in the middle of the story as the book opens. When I initially started to write the book, I really wanted to write a work of nonfiction that would read like a novel. And so I knew that I didn't want to write, you know, a straightforward chronological story. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a relationship with my father for 14 years. And then um, when I did go back to visit him in Mexico, he was living on the ranch where both he and I were born. And then after I got into the writing program, I suddenly had my summers and my holidays off. So I started spending a lot more time with him out on the ranch, and he began to share stories with me. And I think a lot of the stories that he shared with me really shed a light on who he was and how he was wired. Because when I was a kid, I never quite understood why he said and did the things that he did. And so I started to write out, to, to flash out the, the stories that he was sharing with me, I started to write those out. Initially, I wanted to write a novel about his life, but I feel like I sort of, I, I didn't set out to write a memoir, but I feel like I kind of got wrangled into the story. And my editor, you know, also after he read the thesis, he, he said, you know, the, most American readers are not going to identify with your father. I mean, most readers in general are probably not going to identify with my father, mm -hmm. but they're going to identify with you being the daughter of this violent, um, unpredictable man, or even just with the story of the absent father, which I think happens a lot more often than not. Now, your father, your parents had brought your, your family from Mexico to Chicago when you were very young. And then, how old were you when he fled the country and went back to, Me to Mexico? They left Mexico when I was two. Okay. They went to Chicago, found jobs, found a house, got settled. I don't think either of them anticipated that it would take them two years to uh, save up enough money to send for us. But it, it ended up taking two years. So I was separated from them from the time that I was two until I was four. And that's like, that, that separation, I think, really informed the relationship I had with both of my parents, but maybe especially my mother later in life. I think that separation created this built-in alienation between us, which really took us the better part of our lives to sort of find our way back to each other in a way. And then my, well, my brother was killed when I was 12 and my father left maybe within the year after that. And the book opens with a scene from your father's life, but... After that, he's ambushed in, the, in that particular scene. He, it's an ambush. He survives. Mm -hmm. But after that scene, you sort of jump back to the point. I think it's a little bit after your brother's death, the point at which your father kills somebody in Chicago and is shortly thereafter forced to, to leave. Mm -hmm. It feels like that's kind of a, a turning point. And, I mean, certainly you were dealing with all that alienation that you described from the time that you were two either, but... At that point, you're you're more consciously aware of the fact that he's gone, and it's 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 a it's an emotional process that you're much more consciously grappling with. I ultimately wanted to take the reader on the same journey that I went through from when my father left and the anger that I felt towards him, because in many ways I I blamed him, and we all did. My you know we all blamed him for the murder of my brother. He shot and killed the neighbor, and then there were rumors that the neighbor had two brothers that wanted revenge, and they were asking questions around town. And of course, back then in my mind, I thought, well, 
you know, my father, what a coward. He bought himself a bulletproof vest and carried on going to the taverns as he always did. And then eventually he left and he left us to our own devices. But it really made sense. I, I, the ambush scene, I, it made sense for me to start the story there. That's, that's actually, I think, the first scene that I wrote from his perspective. And at that point, I really felt that I kind of discovered what the structure of the book would be because I'd written that scene. You know, I wrote a lot of the scenes in several different ways, even the the scene where he shoots the neighbor. I think initially I wrote that in third person and then switched it to first. So I really kind of played with these different perspectives and just tried to see what made the most sense for each scene. But when I wrote the ambush scene from his perspective, it's something really kind of, it, it clicked. It just, it made sense to filter the story through his point of view, and remove myself from it. And then also because then, you know, that scene ends with me receiving the phone call that he's been ambushed. And at that point in my life, I didn't care whether or not he was dead or alive. So I really wanted to plant that seed in the reader's mind because I think uh, innately the reader's going to be like, why doesn't she care? And they're going to, that, that might be enough tension, just that them wanting to know why I don't care. That might be enough to drive the story forward. And then it made sense to jump back to where he left. I think if I'd gone all the way back to when my brother had been killed, the story would have been different. So it made sense to to jump back to when he left and then sort of bring it all back full circle. Now, you mentioned that this was the first time that you had really started writing, getting into your father's perspective. As a rebullet professor, it's clear that something clicked for you there and that it's a perspective you keep returning to periodically throughout mm-hmm. the book. Well, a lot of the stories that he shared with me, you, it just it made sense to write them from his perspective because I feel like when I did try write when I tried writing some from my point of view or even tried writing them the way that the stories had come to me through the dialogue, they just it really lost the urgency. So it made sense to to put the reader in the scene with my father so that they too would experience the ambush and be in the truck with him, feeling every bump in the road. And, and, and that was actually, it was really fun for me. As a writer, it, it was a challenge and it was fun to recreate these stories that he had shared with me and to really flesh them out into these scenes. You know, for example, like there's the scene where he, he, there was a story he always shared about the first time he ever shot a man. And in his version, he was always, he was 12 years old and he had shot this man defending his brother. So in his story, he would always say, you know, we ran into each other and he was with his older brother, Antonio, and they exchanged words, pulled out their guns, shots were fired. And that was sort of, he kind of gave me the cliff notes Mm -hmm. of the story. And so then I went back and when I was flashing out the scene, I was like, well, I know these men. I know the area where the shooting took place. They ran into each other. They exchanged words pulled out their guns, shots were fired. So it's what words did they exchange that led these men to pull out their guns and shoot at each other? That recreation of that dialogue, that's what was, I suppose that's where the fictionalized sort of element comes into the book. But that for me as a writer was really fun to recreate those scenes. And then there's certain details that were very specific. You, you know, he always said that the the first shot was fired. The other man shot the first bullet, and it hit his brother Antonio's white mare in the forehead mm-hmm. and went out through its ear and hit Antonio in the arm so that his gun was knocked out, out of his hand before he even managed to fire a single bullet. And then later, after my father had died, his brother Antonio told me the same story, and it was verbatim except for he said, you know, your brother, your your father actually wasn't 12 years old. It was... Salvador, his younger brother, that was 12, and your father was probably 15 or 16 years old when that happened. And that was the only discrepancy. And so I felt that my duty as as the author was to let the reader know 
that 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 my father was actually not 12 years old. So I do let them know later later in the book. And I think there's there's one or two other moments like that where there were discrepancies where I let the reader know or where I felt that maybe I didn't trust certain uh, details of the stories that my father was telling me, and I let the reader know that as well. And you know, sadly, my father—he, he, my father died in a very unexpected way six months after I had sold the book. So even though I had been planning on going back to visit him and had a list of questions that I wanted to ask him, I never got the chance. So I had to just sort of do my best with what I had. But he had known—you write about this in the book—he had known about your initial successes with the literary journals as these stories were first appearing. Right. Well, that was really funny. I happened to be in Mexico when I was emailing with the editor at Granta in, in, in England. And so my father, he, he kept driving me in and out of town to use the Internet. And I didn't really tell him exactly what I was doing because I really I didn't want him to know that I was writing about him because I felt that that might then he might uh, be inclined to embellish or who knows. But he was driving me in and out of town. And then after I left, two weeks later, they Granta contacted me and said they were going to publish the stories I'd sent them. So I called my father and I was like, well, guess what? You know, remember when you were driving me in and out of town and I was emailing with these editors and, you know, this journal, it's a literary journal, it's very prestigious. I was trying to really make him understand that it was a big deal. And then I said, you know, and they're going to they're gonna publish the stories. And he was just like, oh, well, that's great. So, so listen, do you know when your sister's coming back? <laughs> and then I was like, and, and well, guess what the stories are about? And he was like, I don't know, what are they about? And I said, well, it's funny because... You know, I never used to talk about you or the past, but do you remember when you shot and killed a neighbor? You know, I wrote a story about that. And there was this long silence. And I think within that silence, he was probably slightly freaking out or thinking, well, what does this mean? You know, who's going to come looking for me now? Or are people going to come asking questions? And then I said, and I said, and guess how much they paid me for it? And he said, how much? And I told him the amount. And that actually, he was really excited about that. You know, he said, you know, well, you know, next time you come down here, maybe bring your notebook and your pen. You know, there's a lot more where that came from. And I'll, I'll tell you some stories and you can go back and make another book for yourself, which I thought was really sweet. And sadly enough, I, I never got the chance to go back. To, I never went back after that because within a few months after that, he, I, well, actually, I don't want to give it away. Okay. Okay. That's right. <laughs> now, the subtitle describes this as the ballad of an outlaw and his daughter. And you do mm -hmm. sort of touch upon the theme of the, uh, I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, the corrido, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a particular genre of ballad that your father was a huge fan of and, and sort of aspired to have one of mm -hmm. his life. Right. Well, corridos, you know, they're a longstanding uh, tradition in Mexican culture. And it's a, it's a poetic genre, and they're ballads, and they tell stories that are usually that usually have a violent undercurrent, and almost always end tragically. And that was my father's music when I was growing up. On the weekends, if he went out and had a few drinks with his friends, he would come back home and blast these corridos through the house to the point where, I, for years, I couldn't stand the sound of the corridos. I just couldn't listen to that music; it made me cringe. And then after, when I went back and reconnected with my father, I sort of started to develop a new appreciation for the music itself and for the stories that they told. And I think also in many ways, I didn't grow up reading. I didn't grow up dreaming of being a writer someday. And we didn't keep a lot of books in the house. But I think even just laying in bed and listening to his corridos and the stories that they told, I think it might have everything to do with why I became a writer. And even when I was writing the book, I very much... 
the corridos, that, that music with the, the horns and the drums and the acoustics of the corridos, it, that's very much the music I could hear playing in the back of my head, that rhythm, like, like the cadence of the corridos, I think, made its way into the story. And I think my father would be very proud to know that I wrote. It's kind of, I like to think of it as the book-length corrido about his life. Now, you mentioned that your initial dream had not been to be a writer, and you do write in Bulletproof Fest about how your original pursuit was acting. You talk about how acting was the craft through which you gained access to the emotions that you were dealing with about the whole family situation, Mm -hmm. but that writing became the tool through which you actually began to deal with the source of those emotions. I think that I had just buried so much of what had happened when I was a kid, from even from the initial separation from my parents when I was two. You know, being separated from them for those two years was hugely traumatic, but I had no memory of it. But the trauma was still there. Um, and then my brother being killed, and then my father just leaving and not saying, not bothering to say goodbye. And I think. And then, you know, when he, sh- I don't give that away either. But but I feel that a, a lot of what went on, I just, I buried it. And I didn't really know how to access those emotions. And I took an acting class. It was my last semester in college. Um, I was an econ major. And I took an acting class because I had already finished taking all of my requirements. And that was an elective. And I thought it'd be fun. And it kind, it was really amazing. I think the first scene I acted in might have been the effect, the effect of gamma rays on Man on the Moon Marigolds. Okay. And then after that, it was, um, oh God, waiting for Godot. It was really exciting when I realized that I could access these emotions and express myself through acting in a way that I'd, I'd never known to be possible. But you know, with acting, it's also you're you're using your your own well of emotions to fuel this other character. So you're still slightly removed from it. Whereas with, with writing, I feel it's, you know, it's that's me on the page and it feels a lot more, I guess, vulnerable in a way. But also it was very, it was very difficult to go back and write about the past because to write about the past is to relive it. But it was also very cathartic. And I made discoveries in the writing itself. There were certain things that I just never had connected. But when I was writing about them, it, I'd be like, oh, right. And, you know, of course, because I wrote the book, it's like now years after the fact, I also had fun just trying to find the humor in certain moments because I think that there, there was, there is humor, even despite the violence in the book. I think there are moments that are just innately humorous. Now, were there other memoir writers who, as you were sort of grappling with the form, gave you a model for how to approach it? Michael Andage wrote Running in the Family. It's nonfiction. I guess it's a memoir. But, you know, it's about him going back to, I believe, Sri Lanka is where he was from. And I think by the time he went back, his father wasn't there anymore. He had, he drank himself to death. But you know, within that book, it was just, it's such a beautifully written book. And he recreates these scenes based on stories that people shared with him about his father and about the past. And Michael Andage, you know, he, he, init- he I think, originally started off as a poet and then obviously writes these very beautiful novels. And Running in the Family was sort of his memoir. But I do remember reading that book and feeling like, wow, if I could try and uh, mimic this or or pull something like this off, that would be great. And then also, I think just poets in general probably write some of the more beautiful memoirs that I've read. Like Nick Flynn's Another Bullshit Night in South City. Have you read that one? Mm -hmm. 
I really enjoyed reading that. And then again, he was also writing about a very difficult father and an absent father and an alcoholic father. So a lot of the uh, the topics, I guess, were similar. Mary Carr's memoirs, I've really enjoyed. In William Faulkner, I think, I, if I had to, to pick a, a novel, a Light in August by William Faulkner, I think really... When I read that book, I felt like, wow, you know, here he, he was writing about these very macho, violent male characters in the South that so much reminded me of my father. And even the way he wrote about religion was really eye-opening for me. Now, you talked about how your father died shortly after you sold the book. And so there were a lot of questions left unanswered and maybe a lot of issues left unresolved. Mm-hmm. as you were working with that. With the rest of your family, how have they felt or, or responded to the existence of these stories out in the world now? You know, I would say about my father dying unexpectedly as he did halfway through the writing process, there were questions left unanswered, but I also feel that at that point he had already shared whatever stories had become his own personal narrative. He had already shared those stories with me. And I don't feel that there was any conflict left unresolved as far as any personal uh, conflict between my father and myself. Okay, so you had made your your peace. I absolutely feel that I had made my peace. And, uh, you know, and I feel very fortunate for that because I think there's a lot of people out there that are estranged from their parents and never get that chance. My siblings, my family, they're not, nothing in the book is going to shock them. After, when we'd get together for the holidays and when, and if we ever started talking about my father, it was always, when we'd start talking about all these, just how many times he'd escaped death. And it always, you know, so then it always, the conversation always ended with, someone's got to write a book about him. But it never went past that. And I certainly never thought that I would be the one to write the book about him either. But uh, there's, there's certainly, there's nothing in the book that's going to shock my family. I know for a fact that uh, one of my sisters has read it, and she really, she she reads a lot. So she said it, you know, she she was laughing and crying and laughing and crying, and that makes sense. And she really also loved the structure of the book. And whereas one, my other sister, she started to read the book, and I and she stopped. And I don't think, she might just never be able to finish it. You know, in writing these stories, it really forced me to relive the past, and it was very painful. And I think for them to read the stories, it's going to force them to relive the past. And my father is gone now, so I think it's going to be difficult. I'm not, I wouldn't doubt it if they didn't, if most of my siblings just don't read it. Now, where do you go from here as a writer? I want to write a collection of short stories <laughs> that might be literary suicide, who knows, I don't know. I want to do that, and I also have an idea for a novel that I'm really excited about. I feel like the, it's, it's percolating, and it's. I want to write a novel that's based in the Yucatan, in New York City, and it's about a, a little girl that's the daughter of the beekeeper in the jungle, and somehow link the disappearance of the honeybees to the story. And I feel like I haven't found her yet. I haven't found my character yet, but I, I'm gonna take. I want to take a trip to the Yucatan in in December. Um, and my sister, she lives down in Tulum. She's a massage therapist there. And she knows a lot of the beekeepers in the jungle. And so I feel like if I went down there and spent some time with them, I think I'm going to find my story and, and write it into a novel. Because I don't want to be pigeonholed a memoirist either. I never wanted to really write a memoir. It's interesting. Yeah, you, you do talk a little bit in the book about how you had really started out with fiction first. Right, because even rec- well, recreating my father's stories... You There's know, a fictional component there. Yeah. Of course, and so I really thought that I would write a novel based on his life. 
And I think the book itself sort of, it goes back and forth between his perspective and my perspective. So it does have that novelistic quality, and then it goes back to the more uh, first-person expository scenes, and then back to the third, to the, you know, his point of view. So it's, it's a hybrid. I, I like to think of the book as sort of this fiction-nonfiction hybrid. Well, it's a really fascinating hybrid, and I encourage people to track it down and read it. It's called Bulletproof Vests, The Ballad of an Outlaw and His Daughter. It's just out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And I've been talking with the author, Maria Venegas. You have been listening to Life Stories. And if you are subscribed to this podcast already, thank you for that. If you aren't subscribed right now, it's very easy to do through the iTunes store. And when you do subscribe, if you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, it makes it a little bit easier for other people to find it in the future. I'm Ron Hogan, and I thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Thanks, and take care.